Hello and welcome back to Rotrack Talks. My name is Tavi Wickman. This week we are continuing our conversation with Robert H. Frank of Cornell about his book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Last week we got into it about smoking and a few other subjects, and this week we are going to be continuing that conversation. If you stick around until the end of the episode, you will be also hearing a little trailer to the coming episode in two weeks with Professor James M. Olson, the former director of counterintelligence at the CIA. Without further ado, here we go. It's, you know, I think if I were wealthy, I would take some of my, my millions and hire Pixar animators to make public service videos that would explain some of these simple policy changes we could adopt. And then I would put them on television as long as need be so that everybody saw them multiple times. I think people would, would demand these changes if they knew about them. Yeah, I think someone should put you in touch with Tom, Tom Steyer. Um, yeah, yeah, he, he would be receptive to an idea like that, wouldn't he? Yeah, I hope so. Um, <laughs> It's 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 a um, it's always the issue of you know great ideas and nobody to get them done. Uh, but you mentioned a bit earlier um, the Invisible Hand um, and of course Adam Smith. Thought we'd get thought we'd get back to that a little bit, little bit quickly here. Um, and the the right has this idea that the Invisible Hand is that it will if you let actors go free in the market they will maximize the returns and do the best for everyone. Um, there's a bit of an issue with that, if, we, if you can go into that as well. You know, the, when that happens, it's really quite an elegant process. So, so Smith saw that the entrepreneur introduces a cost-saving innovation or a product design improvement. He's not trying to help society by doing that. What he's trying to do is steal market share from rival firms. And that's a very good strategy for doing that. So, so that's kind of an old idea. I don't think Smith contributed anything new by pointing that out. But what he really showed was that the story doesn't stop there. The, the entrepreneurs who lost market share because of the innovation from a rival rush to copy it. And they bring it out too. And then in the in the com- competition to restore their market share, prices get bid down continuously until we, we see once the dust settles, consumers get cheaper, better products, uh, all of them. The, the firms make only enough money to cover their costs. And so that really is an everybody wins scenario. That works in those cases, but it doesn't work when uh, emissions accompany the production of the product. Nobody's got a market for that. We have to make a society market for that. Sometimes uh, there are economies of scale, which means a natural monopoly is the best way to serve the market. But then you have to ask what sort of institutional arrangements you need to adopt to make things uh, efficient in, in that case. Yeah, things like trains, um sewage systems, electric grids, they're not exactly effective to have multiples of. No, public goods like that are really much more efficiently provided by government. There are some examples where private entities can do it, but in general, if it's hard to exclude somebody from consuming a good, like national defense, for example, or or clean air, uh, and 
the the cost of making the air clean is the same whether one per- person breathes clean air or or millions do then it's just uh, you can't have a private firm attend to that problem it's got to be a collective solution that we adopt yeah there are some cases where we actually tried this um and had um in the early days of railway for example you had you had what's a, yeah you had private entities doing railways and you they'd, they'd often be doing different widths between the the tracks mm-hmm. Um, and such to make sure that you could only use your rail um, and your trains on those tracks, which means nobody could compete with you on your tracks, mm-hmm. which is very good for you and not for the consumer. Um, oddly enough, um, about 10 minutes away from where I am right now, there is a place, there's a the tram called Rugsaksbanan, which is goes up to Rugslagen in northern Stockholm, which actually does have a thinner, a narrower track width than all the other tracks for trains and subways in Sweden, which was great for them then. Now, because this is a public good and it's owned by the city or the region, it's a massive pain in the ass because uh-huh. they especially order specialized trains for those tracks. And converting it would probably be expensive too. Yeah. Yeah, relaying an entire railway system would be a lot of money. So that's that not exactly an effective means um, on, of getting uh, this to go forward. One thing I pull us into he, from here is the the idea. We're we'll come we're back to taxes again um, and expenditure cascades and how you can regulate and what what incentives you have when it comes to. Um, restricting and um, these massive actors that are competing for uh, positional goods that you go into in the book. Yeah, the, I think the probably the most compelling example there is the housing market. Mm-hmm. Lots of people talk about keeping up with the Joneses and people trying to show off by buying bigger and b- bigger houses. I think what's happened doesn't really fit that description very well. What we know is that Everybody, poor people, middle-income people, rich people, when they get more money, they build bigger. That, that's a natural reaction of, of people at every stage. And what's happened in the last five decades in the U.S., more than in Europe, but also in Europe, is that most of the income gains have gone to people at the top. They've built bigger. Uh, the people in the middle don't get angry when they see pictures of the mansions. They seem to actually like seeing pictures. They think maybe I'll be rich someday. Look how cool that is. They won't be rich someday in most, most cases. Uh, but the point is that they don't get angry about it. They, they like to see the nice houses. What's true, though, is, and they don't try to imitate the rich because how can you? I mean, the, the, that's not within the, the scope of any middle-income family to imitate a, a billionaire's housing. There are people just below the top. They travel in the same social circles as the people at the top. Maybe now, as here, it's become the custom for those people to have their daughter's wedding reception at home. So now we need a big ballroom in our house to accommodate an orchestra and like so. So people in the group one step down, they build bigger. There's a group that socializes with them a, a step below them. Now it's maybe the custom. We have dinner parties for 24, not 18. They build bigger. And it cascades all the way down the income ladder. 
so that the 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 median new house built in the United States now is about 50% bigger than it was in 1970, uh, even though the median earner doesn't have any more money. The median earner, therefore, is in financial difficulty. It's very difficult to afford a house that's so much larger, and, and it's even the price has gone up even more than the size. Maybe we should tell them, don't spend so much on your house. But that that's a problem of another sort, because every parent wants to send her children to the best possible school. And the good schools everywhere in the world I've been, uh, I'm sure it's true in Sweden too, are located in the more expensive neighborhoods. So if you're the median earner, and if your modest goal as a parent is to send your your children to a school of at least average quality, I think we would think ill of you as a parent if you weren't at least that ambitious. What must you do? You must buy the median priced house for your area. So if everybody else is spending more, you have to spend more too. And that's another example of exactly the, the situation we discussed earlier, where it's in your individual interest to do it, but collectively, no but one benefits from that. So if we all bid more intensively for houses with better school districts, the same 50% of all children will go to bottom half schools exactly the same as before. Yeah. So, so if people have access to their savings uh, and can spend them in, in, to bid for houses and better school districts, some people will do that. If you don't do it, it's your kids who will go to the bad schools, so you'll do it too. And then if we just let that process run loose, people enter retirement with no savings. Yeah. And that's why every government all around the world taxes people while they're working, takes money, and uses that money to send them checks in retirement, if, except for the fact that governments do that. Many, many people in retirement wouldn't have any way of paying for food and medicine and, and other things that they need. They would be eating cat food when they retire. Yeah. Well, they might have had enough kids to make sure that they have that welfare net um, that way instead. Yeah. Which there, is... there, there may be other things you could do, but, you know, it's just why not set that money aside? But we can't set it aside as individuals. We have to set it aside collectively in order to get the right amount. Yeah. Exactly, because you can't have the if you can't rationally do it by yourself if nobody else is doing right. it. Right, right. Which is oh, makes me feel frustrated for our world. I guess usually. Well, that that is the central insight of the book that what mm. it makes sense for me to do doesn't make sense for us to do, and so we ought to look mm. for ways that it would make sense for me to do it too. Exactly. Um, you, there was an example you you um, talked about, I believe, in Ezra Klein's interview about the 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 worlds where um and you had different size houses and you're competing for the meet either the largest house in which is smaller bigger than everyone else's but smaller or you have the smallest house yes but all the houses are much bigger um explain that little bit of research there well that's just an example a thought experiment uh that illustrates the the importance of context for how we think about whether something is desirable or not. So the I think the, the thought experiment uh, specifics were something like this. Uh, you, you have a choice between two worlds. Mm -hmm. In one, you can live in a, uh, a neighborhood where the houses all have 4, 000, or 400 meters of square footage uh, of, uh, of area or, and 
that's your neighborhood. Other neighborhoods, it's 600 meters is the is the area of the house. So that's one choice. Uh, in the other choice, you would have 300 meters, uh, and others would have 250. Which world would you choose? And the standard economic model says, oh, that's an easy choice. You have a bigger house than the first one. You you picked 400 meters. Uh, it, what does it matter if everybody else has uh, 600 meters? Uh, you shouldn't care about that. And in fact, when you actually give people that choice, most of them pick 300 for me, other neighborhoods 250. Yeah. And if you think about the the issue of where your kids go to school, that's not such a mysterious choice to make. It's not because you care about having a bigger house than other people. It's just, you know, if you have a house in the neighborhood where the houses are cheapest, your kids will go to the worst schools. Uh, yeah. If you do that same experiment, two worlds, uh, where would you choose? In one world, uh, the, the, your risk of dying on the job is two in a hundred thousand each year. Everybody else has a risk of one in a hundred thousand. So your job is twice as unsafe as everyone else. You could go to a second world if you didn't like that, that, uh, uh, circumstance, you could go where you would have a risk of four in a hundred thousand and everybody else would have a risk of six in a hundred thousand. So you would have the safest job if you went to that world, where would you choose? Nobody in that example chooses to go to a world where they would have four in a hundred thousand chance of dying rather than two in a hundred thousand. They don't like the fact probably that they have a relatively unsafe job in the first world, but they won't give up uh, they won't double their chance of dying in order to get get over that uh, unhappiness. So the point of of the examples is that relative position matters more in some cases than others. And when that's true, we get distortions in the economy. It's exactly the same as military arms races. Mm-hmm. So uh, we we know that if another country has more armaments than we do, our political uh, independence is at risk. We don't like that. Uh, well, what if they have more toasters than we have? We don't like that either, but that's not as dangerous. And so that's all you need. It's the exact same conditions as the first example. People will spend less and less on safety uh, in order to get extra money to get a house in a better school district. But when everybody does that, still half of all the kids go to bottom half schools. Everybody will spend more and more on bombs to get uh, military security. But when everybody does that, nobody gets any more secure than before. Yeah. Yeah. We, we spoke to in our past past episode um, um, for season, season one, Hunter Hustis, who's a nuclear weapons expert. Um, and that was a lot about this, the, the deterrence factor and and such, and the the issue with the theory, theories around deterrence is the fact that you need to be able to act on what you're um, threatening. You can't right. you can't go from small arms to nuclear weapons. You need something in between there. And um, if you can't match what the person is coming at you with, or you can't react proportionally, um, yes. so it's not only about having the most weapons; it's having the most alternatives to act. Right there. Right. Which is why they have the W seventy six dash two nuclear weapons on the submarines now, um, and of course I did 
my research for that one as well, because now apparently I have nuclear payloads and stuff in my head. <laughs> uh, great thing for me to have in my head. I will never need this information again, hopefully. Um, but it, it, it really, when it comes to armed races and that kind of stuff, it's, it's one of those this terrifying areas where you, you have to keep matching your opponent. And unfortunately, this is one of the cases where you have that, whereas you don't have the same issue, same opportunity to you know have expenditure cascade when it comes to housing um, right and and i think it's important to note that the logic about the military arms race is completely uncontroversial uh when when countries sign agreements verifiable enforceable agreements to limit the amount of arms they buy they they do that voluntarily they want to do that they think it's a good thing to do that and so they're they're telling you that without those agreements, they will choose to build more arms than they want to build uh, from a collective vantage point. And the reason we get those kinds of agreements is that context matters more for bombs than it does for schools and hospitals and other things that we might spend the same money on. And it's as long as you recognize that some goods are more sensitive in our evaluations of them to the context in which they fall, you're going to get exactly those same kinds of spending distortions in the private economy. Yeah. Um, of course, it also demands a certain level of trust between the, the actors. And unfortunately, that doesn't exist right now um, in many states. Well, if we, if we have an effective government, you have, you have a, a relatively effective government there. Uh, the, the citizens of Sweden are on on the list of countries each year, uh, transparency, international surveys, people around the world. How do you feel about your government? People in Sweden say they feel like the the government employees are honest for the most part, that they could get good value for their tax payments. Uh, and so that's, that's a huge asset for a society because it lets you solve these kinds of problems. One thing I think we can um, start rounding off with is the the effect for I guess the people we've been, we've been talking about so much now is the people that have a fair deal of wealth and their experience of some of these solutions to problems and what effect would that have on them? Um, I believe you you go into that a bit in the book and in other in interviews about how you can make sure that even if they do end up with less money overall, they'll end up um, at the end of the line in a better position. Uh, well, we talked about the revenue neutral approach to taxation. Uh, mm -hmm. If you want to discourage people from engaging in behavior that causes harm to others, taxing the behavior is a very efficient and unintrusive way to do that. And by making the tax revenue neutral, you can uh, quite easily ensure that nobody will suffer any real financial hardship as a result of your adopting that part policy. Nobody at the top of the income ladder is worried that he won't be able to buy anything a person might reasonably be said to need. That Nobody's got any proposal that would threaten that. What are they worried about then? They're worried that they won't be able to buy the special luxuries they want. Well, what I think people who have that worry haven't realized is that 
those luxuries are always and everywhere things that are in short supply. The way you get them is you have to outbid other people like you who also want them. And if you pay more in tax and other people like you pay more in tax, your relative bidding power is completely unaffected by that. And so the, the, the luxury penthouse apartments with sweeping views of, of the, the city end up in exactly the same hands as before. So there's really uh, no cogent argument against using our national income to attend to these problems that affect everybody in, in these serious adverse ways. We have the resources to do it. It wouldn't require painful sacrifices from anyone for the ones who have the most resources to bear the brunt of the financial burden for paying for these things because uh, they're doing that wouldn't affect their relative bidding power. Yeah, and of course, we have to have some kind of uh, taxation on uh, foreign buyers um, to avoid the yeah. Vancouver situation of it all. Yes, exactly. You don't want the oligarchs coming in and out, outbidding you. Uh, so fine, levy a, a stiff uh, transaction fee on foreign buyers. That's fine. Yeah. And of course, in the end, you are, when it comes to your social circles, you're often only competing with people in your immediate surroundings. So you have the millionaire in Stockholm living in um, 100 square meters, you have the millionaire in, let's say, Antrotsvik. Um, We're using Stockholm, Swedish um, areas now. Um, living in a thousand square meters because they have the same they have the same income but you know yeah um it's part of the this, this issue came up uh when the governor of california uh jerry brown at the time raised the income tax rate on the top earners by 50 percent mm. and their widespread forecast that the the wealthy residents of california would leave the state in huge numbers they would move to oregon or nevada or somewhere in fact, uh, a study was published at Stanford a couple of years after this change was implemented, and they examined out-migration rates for every spot along the income ladder, and by far, the lowest out-migration rate of all was the top 1%. I mean, these are people who have successful lives, they have positions of, of uh, respect and admiration, they have businesses that are, are mm -hmm. prospering, if the absolute pay they get uh, at the end after tax is lower than before, that's of absolutely no consequence to anything that they really care about. They get better public yeah. services. Uh, it's it's a win for them. Yeah. In the end, you know, where we rather live with a bad roads and have a Ferrari, or would you have a the good roads and drive a Porsche? Um, yeah, that's the question. Yeah, for me, I'd much rather have you know a BMW and live in Germany because you have the autobahn yeah. and things like that instead of living in. Um, Indonesia, where I've actually lived for a short time and have a Ferrari because you'd have traffic jams and you wouldn't be able to enjoy the car anyway. Yes. It wouldn't be of yeah, much no, use. No, that's, that's a very useful thought experiment. Yeah. Um, I think we can round off there. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us. Uh, pleasure having pleasure. you. Yeah. No, I, I enjoyed our conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, eager to see if you get any feedback about it. Let's, let's hope we will. Um, a lot of our, our listeners are young and um students so this is definitely their area so that's be a lot of fun okay good thank you and
And that concludes the second half of the interview with Professor Robert H. Frank of Cornell. His book is, of course, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, and you can find that in the show notes. We will be back again next week with James M. Olson, former Director of Counterintelligence at the CIA. If you want to hear a trailer of that, it will be coming in just a second. I first, I first remember being aware of Vladimir Putin when he was still a lieutenant colonel in the KGB in East Germany. And I know we were tracking him, and we knew already what he was. We knew he was a very ruthless officer. We knew he had no scruples. We knew he was probably a killer. And our assessment of him, I think, has not changed. In fact, I think most intelligence officers would agree that Vladimir Putin is more dangerous now than he was back then. Oh, 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 oh,